The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This, then, is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Tim, for reading the word to us today. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome again to church. It's so good to be together. And uh, my name is Terry, and I'm so happy to share the message this morning. And I uh, thank you, Kevin, for leading us in this day of worship, and also for Pat as she uh, focused our attention on the persecuted church. Whenever I come to this kind of a Sunday in, in a given year, um, I think about uh, the, the words of that old hymn by Martin Luther, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And um, all through the ages there have been people following Christ like we do, but under much duress and persecution. And so thank you. This morning as we think of the scripture that uh, has been read by Tim, um, I just want to remind us of uh, the incredible context that Romans chapters 9 to 11 brings us into. Paul, the Apostle Paul is tackling a thorny historical and theological issue. He is wrestling with the fact that Israel as a nation in the first century had rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And along with that, of course, then they rejected the message that Jesus Christ brought and passed on through the gospel. And yet from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, Paul knew, we know, that from the time of calling Abraham, Abraham was told by God, I will bless you, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel were terrible ambassadors of the living God to the other nations. They were poor stewards of the message of the God of grace that has all nations on his heart. And yet, as God's chosen people... Paul also knew that they were heirs to the promises of God that were made to Abraham. And so this serious dilemma that was on the hearts of many people in the New Testament times, Paul does not shrink back from addressing it head on in these three chapters in the middle of this Magna Carta book of Romans that Paul is writing, the most extensive explanation of the Christian gospel that he has written. And this morning, as we continue, we're almost finished these three chapters, but today we enter into yet another. And really, what's at stake in these three chapters is the credibility of God. And so Paul is addressing this, taking three chapters in the middle of this 16-chapter book or letter, and he's addressing it. Paul's experience, remember, in living 2,000 years ago was that more Gentiles, more non-Jewish people were coming to put faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, than were his own countrymen, the Jewish people. They were still rejecting the Messiah. 
And Paul wrestled with this because he was convinced of three things. Number one, he was convinced that God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. He, was, he knew that. Number two, that God had preserved a remnant of Israel in every generation of his own people that were faithful. And number three, that God would soften the hearts of his people in time and bring about this, this, deeper, this deeper ownership of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, uh, before the end of the age. And he was convinced of these three things, and on that basis he was able to write more of the revelation that the Holy Spirit gave him so that we could understand more as well. Now, throughout church history, theologians have had many ways of answering the question that Paul is addressing, namely, what is Israel's place in history? And if you have the insert in your bulletin, you can see this and you can follow along with our PowerPoint as well. I'm just going to name four ways that people have tried to address and understand Israel's role in history. Well, the first way I would like to describe is, is called two-covenant theory. Now, what is two-covenant theory? This approach teaches that the Jewish people do not need to believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah. They teach that God has already made a covenant with the Jewish people, and throughout the ages of the Old Testament, he made a covenant through Abraham and, and Moses and David and so on. And, and so they already are in relationship with God. And so it's only the, the Gentiles, we Gentiles, that need to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the two-covenant theory. Now, if you have any kind of radars up <laughs> on the New Testament teaching, you'll know that this is absolutely unacceptable as a solution or an answer. Why would Paul be, be suffering in anguish and praying for his people if they were not in need of salvation, in, in other words? And so this understanding of the New Testament is not a solution. It assumes that the Jewish people can be righteous enough in their own righteousness, that there is no need for them to have a substitute that is righteous and holy, Jesus Christ alone, and that somehow they're going to make it in on their own. And this is not in any way, New Testament Christianity. That's one solution that people propose. Another one is called dispensationalism. This is, uh, you might be a dispensationalist and not know it. This perspective also believes that God has two distinct peoples. They believe that Israel and the New Testament church are two distinct peoples, that they believe that salvation is the same for both, though, that it is by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and so very different than two-covenant theory. And so the church, though, is not replaced uh, by Israel in God's program. Old Testament promises to Israel are not transferred to us in the church, in the New Testament church. They are still going to be fulfilled literally by God through his people Israel, and the culmination of that fulfillment will take place during that thousand-year period that is described in, in Revelation chapter 20. That is classic dispensationalism, and that is one proposal on what God's dealings with Israel are in history. Another uh, theory is what is called replacement theology. This approach believes that the church, us, are the new Israel, and indeed that all the promises that God made to Israel are now transferred to us and given to the church. They quote passages like Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, where it says that Paul, addressing the circumcised and the uncircumcised, he calls us the Israel of God. 
And so that is a basis example for replacement theology. In replacement theology, there is no distinct future plan for Israel because God has one people, not two. His church, made up of Jew and Gentile alike. And in the minds of many people who hold this position, the primary purpose of Israel was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham, the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, the root of David, and and that has happened, and, and so now we have our Messiah, and he has one people, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. And then finally, I want to suggest that there is another way of understanding Israel's place in history, and I wonder if Paul, the apostle, is trying to describe it in Romans chapter 11. It is certainly not a two-covenant theory approach. It might have some resemblance to the dispensational view. It might even include some elements of replacement theology, though I'm sure that the apostle Paul would not choose that name in any way. I've read various authors who prefer the word fulfillment, fulfillment theology, in this approach to Israel's place in history. Israel is is given a place at the end of the age, indeed, as the scriptures teach, as many Jews turn to Jesus Christ before his second coming and acknowledge him as their Messiah, and a remnant of them are saved. But in no way does Israel somehow take center stage or eclipse the place of the church of Jesus Christ. That would be a fulfillment theology. For there is one people. We do not have Jesus Christ coming to gather up two brides, but one bride made of Jew and Gentile. And indeed, as I think about the whole of Scripture, and especially the last book of the Bible and the picture that is given in chapters like Revelation 5 or 7, verse 9, we see a people from every people, tribe, language, and people, and nation, and so on. And it seems to me that there's just one people, one church, that gathers around the throne of God, Jesus Christ, at the center. Now, perhaps Paul is wise to not give us categorical titles, and he tries to explain the place of Israel in history as he goes into chapters 9 to 11. The subject is so divisive without defining the different theological camps that exist. In fact, why are you even talking about it today, Pastor? You might be thinking, why bring this subject up? It might just stir up, in fact. It might just stir up the whole issue of the Israeli and Palestinian debate and and problem over the years. I read a 2017 Lifeway research study recently that revealed that evangelical Christians under the age of 35, some of you are under the age of 35, has a left, have, have a less positive view of Israel than their parents' generation. A full 66% of evangelical Christians under 35 believe that Christians should do more to love and care for the Palestinian people. Now, when I share that with you, you might be sitting in your chair at home or wherever you are, and when I say that, some of your hot buttons get pushed, and you start to get agitated in defense of Israel. Or some of you might be sounding that that sounds pretty balanced to my ears and so on. We're not going to address this subject this morning, and we don't need to actually agree on all kinds of areas surrounding God's program at the end of the age, especially as it concerns Israel. 
But what we should be able to agree on is that God loves all peoples of this earth, that God loves Israelis and Palestinians, and that we will one day see Israelis and Palestinians, representation of those two people groups, around the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, at the throne of God in heaven, worshiping him in unity. And so before we turn this biblical text into ammunition for some geopolitical agenda or to be leveraged by some theological camp or another, let's hear from an authority that is more qualified than anyone else on the earth today to speak into this matter. And I'm talking about, of course, the Apostle Paul. That that incredible man who was a Hebrew of Hebrews and yet a Roman citizen, (laughs) who was a member of the most strict sect of Judaism, the Pharisees, and yet was also the apostle to the Gentiles and a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that speaking in the first century when he lived and the person that he was gives him every bit of authority to to speak into what we should believe 2,000 years later. And so... I believe it was the wisdom of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit not only to give him the content of what we're studying today, but also to give him the pedagogy, the methodology of how he delivers the content about Israel and its place in history. For Paul, in his wisdom, avoids all the loaded labels, all the arguments for or against theological camps, and historical views on Israel, and Paul goes directly to the mystery of an olive tree. He uses a metaphor. In fact, he uses two metaphors. One is the lump of dough, but he really gets into this idea of the olive tree. And so let's think about what Paul the Apostle has to say about the mystery of the olive tree. The Hebrew word, for olive tree is shemen, and it literally means tree of oil. Some trees in Israel today are estimated to be a thousand years old, their rootstock, and they're still producing olives that produce olive oil because there are newer stalks of branches that are grafted in and so able to continue to produce young and good fruit. Some trees actually have such a thick trunk that because of their age that they are about 20 feet in circumference. Incredibly big trees at the base. But before we go any farther, we have to talk about what is this thing called grafting. Grafting, by definition, is the the cultivation practice of placing young budding stems onto established trees to ensure the tree's limbs produce the desired kind and quality of fruit. Now, probably you've all heard about grafting. Um, I don't know too many people that have actually experimented and experienced grafting. If we were to look at trees that are fruit trees closer to home that, that are in our country, we see that grafting has many advantages. You can go to a greenhouse today, for example, and you can buy what's called a combination tree. That's a tree that has already been worked on, grafted into, and you can take that tree home and plant it in the back of your yard, and you can have several different kinds of fruit on the same basic tree. It's incredible. For example, 
you can have different kinds of apples on the same tree. <laughs> and, and more than that, you can even go further and you can have pears that grow on an apple tree, depending on, of course, the compatibility of the fruit. Some varieties of peaches and nectarines are compatible with plum rootstocks. And the key in grafting, of course, is the different families of the fruits that will need to be together because they're of their compatibility botanically. And so you example, for example, you could take a pear branch, it's called a scion, you could take a pear branch and you could attach it into a growing apple tree called a rootstock, but you could not take an orange scion and try to graft it into an apple rootstock because they are not compatible. They are from different families organically, botanically. Now, you need to remember this terminology that I'm using of compatibility because we're going to be talking about it soon in terms of the meaning of the metaphor when we talk about grafting different branches into the olive tree of God. Let's move on then to talk about what is the meaning of the olive tree, and especially let's start with the root. In verse 11 of this scripture, um, Paul answers the question, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? And the word fall, which we talked about previously, means to fall permanently. Are they done? Is God done with Israel? And Paul's answer is by no means. Rather, he says, through their message, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now this is a hard concept for us to get. And so like Jesus in his ministry using parables, Paul turns to a metaphor of an olive tree to teach. In verse 16, we talk about the root. He says in verse 16 that the root is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches have to be holy. Why? Wow, that makes sense. If you look at any tree, whatever the root is of that tree, the branches are the same. They've got to have the same compatibility. The sap has to agree with whatever is being grafted in. And so if the root is holy, the branches have to be holy. He says in verse 17 as well that the, the root is the nourishing source. Any branch on this olive tree is made holy, but it's only sustained to be holy by the root itself, the sap that flows in, the life-giving, nurturing, sustaining sap that brings to the branch what the root alone can provide. Very important spiritual concepts that Paul is talking here about in terms of our own spiritual lives. Jesus, talking in John 15, talks in a similar way about the vine and the branches, doesn't he? And so, of course, only God is holy. Only God can make people holy. And so, therefore, only God can preserve and nourish and sustain people who have been made holy through his righteousness, through Jesus Christ. We do not come to a righteous standing before God based on our own merit, and we do not maintain our righteousness in our own merit or strength either. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we depend on abiding in that vine of Jesus Christ for the sustenance to come into our lives, flow out of our lives, be fruitful in our lives. This is a spiritual metaphor that's so important to understand. What is our job? Is the job of the branch to try and bear fruit? No, the job of the branch is to yield deeply, to yield, surrender deeply to the stock and let as much of him flow into our lives as possible so that he will flow out of our lives in the best kind of fruit 
that only he can provide. So let's be clear about the root. The root goes down deep into to being the true and living God. That's who the root is in this olive tree. And uh, how has he made himself known? Well, he's made himself known through a people. And that people are Israel. And so let's move on. What is the meaning of the branches of the olive tree? Now, there are two kinds of branches that Paul mentions in the scripture. And the first kind of branch is called the natural branches, verse 21 and verse 24. And they are Israel, clearly. The natural branches are the ones that naturally flow out of this tree. God's intention was to make himself known through a people who would bless every nation on earth. And so the, the, the people that are from the seed of Abraham, descended of Abraham, they share in the covenants that God made. They are the ones who received the law of Moses at Mount Sinai and explained to them how they were to live life, temple worship, priestly sacrifice, and so on, until the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come from the line of Abraham and David and so on, and he would be the one now who would bring the flourishing blessing to all nations. And so that's the picture of the natural branches. But of course we know the natural branches were disobedient. In the entire history of Israel, it reveals in their name alone, wrestling with God. That is why God says at the end of chapter 10, 21, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. They disobeyed the law of Moses. They killed the prophets that God sent them. They turned to other gods. They wanted to be like other nations. And when God, in the fullness of time, sent his one and only son to them to be a light for the nations... They took him and they crucified the Lord of glory on a cross. They rejected their own Messiah. And so God gave them over for a season. And what does the Bible say in the metaphor? The, the, the way that Paul describes it three times is it says in verse 17, in verse 19, and in verse 20, he says that these natural branches were broken off. Broken off. Rejected by God because of their unbelief. The other kind of branches that are described in the scripture are called wild olive shoots. They are mentioned in verse 17 and verse 24, and clearly they refer to us peoples, the Gentile nations, all other nations on the earth. We are not naturally descended of Abraham. God did not give our people the law of Moses, God did not make a covenant with your ancestors or mine. God did not send prophets the way he sent them to Israel. And Jesus the Messiah did not come from your lineage. No, he came from Israel, the Messiah for all nations. And so we are not naturally part of the olive tree. We are wild olive shoots that in the mercy of God are grafted in to the rootstock. And Paul, because of this truth, this reality, he says three times, don't you get arrogant. Verse 18, he says in 18, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Verse 20, 
Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, unnatural ones. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Paul, Paul is talking about these two kinds of branches. And he summarizes in verse 22. He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who had fallen, clearly referring to Israel. And kindness to you, clearly referring to Gentiles. Provided you continue in that kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in, for God has power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, twice he uses the how much more principle in this text, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So the branches represent non-Jewish people, wild olive shoots that God is able to graft into the natural olive tree, and, and that's possible why? That's a good question. Let's go back to the compatibility principle. What is the compatibility of us with the rootstock that God has provided through Israel and Abraham? And the key word, folks, is faith. Key word is faith. That's the, that's the main ingredient that we must have in common if we're going to be grafted into this stock of Jesus Christ. And that's why, that's why Israel was ungrafted or broken off, is because of, they didn't believe. They were, were taken out because of unbelief. God's plan and purpose in history is to graft us into through believing in Christ. And this has been occurring ever since New Testament times. The last words that Jesus gave us was, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos all people groups. And in the fullness of time, when the full number of those that are going to come to Christ on this earth, in this age, when that fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God says in his word that he's going to then lift that hardening that has been on Israel. He's going to soften several of them up. They're going to be a remnant of Israel that will come into Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as their Messiah before that second coming of Jesus to this earth. So in, in, a, in as, as few words as we can say, what is the mystery? Verse 25, what is the mystery of the olive tree? And I think there are two parts, probably several, but one of them is this incredible Gentile inclusion that causes Israel to be jealous. Now, do you understand that? I don't. Okay. Um, Paul was spending his life ministering to the Gentiles hoping that somehow it would cause jealousy among the Jews. What are we going to see in this age? I don't understand how it's going to happen. For I don't, I don't see right now a Gentile church on earth that is living so exemplary under their Messiah, our Messiah, Jesus, so as to make Israel jealous to want to own him as their Messiah. But it will occur, I believe. It will happen. And God will do it. 
And so we're living in a, in a season, in an age of time when we, we, we look at the persecuted church today and we think, Lord, I need to grow. I need to toughen up. I, I see I'm not very strong. But God is doing things around this globe. And the second aspect I think that is a mystery is that not all who are Israel are true Israel. Again, this is a mystery of the olive tree. And we read in Scripture, we read earlier in chapter 9, verse 6, for Paul said it himself, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And so, in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah, he says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And so Paul teaches clearly that the true sons and daughters of Abraham are not the physical descendants, but the spiritual descendants through faith in the seed of Abraham called Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, Paul writes, If you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to the promises that were made to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And that leads to our next point, and that is, what is the meaning of the fruit of the olive tree? Now, the fruit of the olive tree is clearly salvation for the nations, salvation that will extend to people from every tribe and tongue and language and people group on earth that will come to know Jesus. And referring to Israel, Paul writes in verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, here's the other, how much more, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15, if their rejection means, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean except life from the dead? Now, we're going to talk more about that next week, the fruit of this incredible salvation of this olive tree that is going to be, uh, that is growing right now. And um, the saving of, of a remnant of Israel, the mercy extended to all people groups, and the full inclusion of every ethnos, every ethnic group on earth, as we see it in, in Revelation, every tribe, language, people, and nation worshiping Jesus Christ, every nation. And I, I just want you to know that, that this, is the, this is the way history's going, folks. God's word tells us. This is the trajectory of history. You can take a snapshot of the church today in the 21st century and compare it to the word of God, and you can know where we are in history, folks. We're in this history of the hardening of Israel, and we're in this time of the grafting in of us the Gentile church on earth, this missionary age that has been sent out ever since Christ left and was ascended into heaven. He said, go, go and make disciples of every nation. That's what's happening, folks. That's the age we're living in. And um, I just want to take a moment to to talk about the tree that's over here now, and we're going to move over to that and talk about this tree. I want to thank my wife, Pat, first of all, for some of the inspiration of this, and my friend, Phil, who helped me put this together. Now, this is not an olive tree, as you can tell. This is a birch tree. But I want to describe now what I believe the Apostle Paul has been teaching in the Scripture this morning. 
We'll start with the roots. We'll see that in the roots that you can't see, this is, this is a holy tree, a nourishing tree spiritually, and, it, and only God is holy, and so this tree is God's tree. Now, how did God decide that he would make himself known on earth? He said he's going to start with one man. His name is Abraham. So you can look at the very base of this tree. You would see Abraham. The trunk of this tree is Abraham. And from Abraham, we see that God, going up the tree, he made covenants. He made agreements, relational connections with his people. We go up a little higher, and we see Moses come along, and God says, I'm going to describe to my people, Israel, my faithful ones, my chosen ones, I'm going to describe how they should live their lives. He gives us the law of Moses. He gives, he gives Israel how they will run in, in order that God could dwell among them in the tabernacle, and they could have a relationship with the living God, their creator. We go up a little higher and we see in this incredible highest point in Israel history, the King David. And King David was the, the foreshadowing of Jesus, the, the best king ever. And under King David, Israel reached its most healthy place under God possible. And then as we go up the tree and we get to this place, we see that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he became the Messiah King that all peoples on earth were to rally to. And Israel was meant to be the announcer, the messenger of this incredible king. But they'd rejected him. They rejected Jesus Christ, even as they wrestled with God all throughout their Old Testament history. And so we see that God takes Israel out. He breaks them off. He says, no longer. I'm not going to have you as my people. No longer. Now, he, he, he's kept a remnant. Here's the Apostle Paul. Here's others that were always faithful throughout the ages. But God says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to harden my people. I'm going to invite other nations in. They weren't doing it. I'm going to do it. And he sends out the apostles, and he sends out the New Testament church, and he says, go, make disciples of all nations. And so we see it happen. Did you see, as we talked about India today, did you hear about India? Do you know there's over 2,000 different ethnos in India? 2,000 different people groups in this one country, this one flag that God is grafting in. And in heaven, every one of those people groups is going to have representation, worshiping Jesus Christ. And here's Pakistan. I'm going to put them on this same branch. Because right now, you know that Pakistan and India were one country, but there's division, but boy, in Jesus Christ, they're going to be united. And here's Canada. And Canada, we know, we know that we're many nations, aren't we? We have so many people groups we have First Nations peoples. I don't know how many there are of them. And we have other nations, immigrants that have come here. Do we think for a moment that when we graft this flag in that this is meaning that every Canadian of all time is going to be saved, is going to be in heaven? Not at all. We don't believe that. And neither do we believe that every Israeli of all time is going to be in heaven. 
though they are God's chosen people. You see, because what is the compatibility factor? Faith. It's not every descendant of Abraham that's going to be in heaven. It's every spiritual descendant of Abraham. By the mercy of God, we have been grafted in. Have you been grafted in? Do you have personal faith in Jesus Christ? We're going to sing. We're going to praise God. We're going to worship him. And as you see the flags going on this tree of the nations, if you see a flag that you identify with, if you see a flag that you, you really want to, would you pray for that country? Would you pray for the persecuted church in that country? Would you pray for the Christians there? Would you pray for God to raise up an army of missionaries there as well as from elsewhere that will minister his grace and his gospel? Praise God. Amen. Lord God, I thank you for meeting us here today. And as we go into your word and as we wrestle through all of the layers and complexities of things that you have for us there, we know at the heart of it all that this is true, that where there is hope, there is you. And where there is real love, there is you. Where there is real joy, there is you. And where there is glory, there is you. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to glorify yourself through us and through this church that you've created all around the world for your good, and that is our good as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.